Section 4 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology by William G. T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vicarious Atonement, Part 3 Having thus considered the nature of atonement and the sufferings of the mediator as constituting it, we proceed to notice some further characteristics of it. 1. In the first place, atonement is correlated to justice, not to benevolence. Some have maintained that retributive justice is a phase of benevolence. They would reduce all the moral attributes to one, ultimately, namely, the divine love. This theory is built upon the text, God is love, but there are texts affirming that God is light, 1 John 1 5, and that God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. The affirmation, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3, is equivalent to God is holiness. Upon the strength of these texts, it might be contended that all the divine attributes may be reduced to that of wisdom, or of justice, or of holiness. The true view is that each of the attributes stands side by side with all the others, and cannot be merged and lost in any other. Justice is no more a phase of benevolence than benevolence is a phase of justice. Each attribute has a certain distinctive characteristic which does not belong to the others, and by which it is a different attribute. The fact that one divine attribute affects and influences another does not convert one into another. Omnipotence acts wisely, but this does not prove that omnipotence is a mode of wisdom. God's justice acts benevolently, not malevolently, but this does not prove that justice is a mode of benevolence. God's benevolence acts justly, not unjustly, but this does not prove that benevolence is a mode of justice. The divine attributes do not find a centre of unity in any one of their own number, but in the divine essence. It is the divine nature itself, not the divine attribute of love, or any other attribute in which they all inhere. Accordingly, the atoning sufferings and death of Christ are related to the attribute of justice, rather than to any other one of the divine attributes. They manifest and exhibit other attributes, such as wisdom, omnipotence, benevolence, and compassion, nay, all the other attributes, but they are an atonement only for retributive justice. Christ's death does not propitiate or satisfy God's benevolence, nor his wisdom, nor his omnipotence, but it satisfies his justice. Atonement cannot be correlated to benevolence any more than creation can be correlated to omniscience. It is true that the creation of the world supposes omniscience, but creation is an act of power rather than of knowledge, and is therefore referred to omnipotence rather than to omniscience. In like manner, Christ's atonement supposes benevolence in God, but benevolence is not the particular attribute that requires the atonement. It is retributive justice that demands the punishment of sin, if there were in God mere and isolated benevolence, there would be neither personal nor vicarious punishment, just as there would be no creation if there were in God mere and isolated omniscience. Benevolence alone and wholly disconnected from justice would not cause pain but pleasure. It would relieve from suffering instead of inflicting it. St. Paul in Romans 5.7 teaches the diversity between the attribute of justice and that of benevolence in saying that scarcely for a just man will one die, yet peradventure for a benevolent man some would even dare to die. 2. Secondly, an atonement for sin of one kind or the other, if not personal then vicarious, is necessary, not optional. The transgressor must either die himself, or someone must die for him. This arises from the nature of that divine attribute to which atonement is a correlate. 
Retributive justice, we have seen, is necessary in its operation. The claim of law upon the transgressor for punishment is absolute and indefeasible. The eternal judge may or may not exercise mercy, but he must exercise justice. He can neither waive the claim of law in part, nor abolish them altogether. The only possible mode, consequently, of delivering a creature who is obnoxious to the demands of retributive justice is to satisfy them for him. The claims themselves must be met and extinguished either personally or by substitution. Fiat justitia ruet coelum, and this necessity of an atonement is absolute, not relative. It is not made necessary by divine decision, in the sense that the divine decision might have been otherwise. It is not correct to say that God might have saved man without a vicarious atonement, had he been pleased so to do. For this is equivalent to saying that God might have abolished the claims of law and justice, had he been pleased to do so. 3. In the third place, an atonement, either personal or vicarious, when made, naturally and necessarily cancels legal claims. This means that there is such a natural and necessary correlation between vicarious atonement and justice that the former supplies all that is required by the latter. It does not mean that Christ's vicarious atonement naturally and necessarily saves every man, because the relation of Christ's atonement to divine justice is one thing, but the relation of a particular person to Christ's atonement is a very different thing. Christ's death, as related to the claims of the law upon all mankind, cancels those claims wholly. It is an infinite propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2, 2. but the relation of an impenitent person to this atonement is that of unbelief and rejection of it. Consequently, what the atonement has effected, objectively in reference to the attribute of divine justice, is not effected subjectively in the conscience of the individual. There is an infinite satisfaction that naturally and necessarily cancels legal claims, but unbelief derives no benefit from that fact. In like manner, a personal atonement naturally and necessarily cancels legal claims. When the prescribed human penalty has been personally endured by the criminal, human justice is satisfied and there are no more outstanding claims upon him. And this by reason of the essential nature of justice. Justice insists upon nothing but what is due, and when it obtains this it shows its righteousness in not requiring anything further, as it does in not accepting anything less. Consequently, personal atonement operates inevitably, and we might almost say mechanically. If a criminal suffers the penalty affixed to his crime, he owes nothing more in the way of penalty to the law. He cannot be punished a second time. Law and justice cannot now touch him, so far as this particular crime and this particular penalty are concerned. It would be unjust to cause him the least jot or tittle of further retributive suffering for that crime which by the supposition he has personally atoned for. The law now owes him immunity from suffering anything more. It is not grace in the law not to punish him any further, but it is debt. The law itself is under obligation not to punish a criminal who has once been punished. St. Paul says respecting grace and debt in the case of active obedience that to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. Otherwise work is no more work. Romans 4.4, 4, 11.6 In like manner it may be said that to him who atones for sin the legal consequence of atonement is not reckoned of grace but of debt. Otherwise atonement is no more atonement. This reasoning applies to vicarious atonement equally with personal. Justice does not require a second sacrifice from Christ in addition to the first. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 10.28. This one offering expiated the sins of the whole world, and justice is completely satisfied in reference to them.
the death of the guardman naturally and necessarily cancelled all legal claims. When a particular person trusts in this infinite atonement, and it is imputed to him by God, it then becomes his atonement for judicial purposes as really as if he had made it himself, and then it naturally and necessarily cancels his personal guilt, and he has the testimony that it does in his peace of conscience. Divine justice does not, in this case, require an additional atonement from the believer. It does not demand penal suffering from a person for whom a divine substitute has rendered a full satisfaction, which justice itself has accepted in reference to this very person. By accepting a vicarious atonement for a particular individual, the divine justice precludes itself from requiring a personal atonement from him. Accordingly, Scripture represents the non-infliction of penalty upon the believer in Christ's atonement as an act of justice to Christ, and also to the believer viewed as one with Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1 9. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Romans 8, 33 and 34. The atoning mediator can demand upon principles of strict justice the release from penalty of any sinful man in respect to whom he makes the demand. And if in such a case we should suppose the demand to be refused by eternal justice, we should suppose a case in which eternal justice is unjust. For by the supposition, justice has inflicted upon the mediator the full penalty due to the sinner, and then refuses to the mediator that release of this sinner from penalty which the mediator has earned by his own suffering, and which is now absolutely due to him as the reward of his suffering. It is, says Edwards, so ordered that the glory of the attribute of divine justice requires the salvation of those that believe. The justice of God, that irrespective of Christ's atonement, required man's damnation, and seemed inconsistent with his salvation. Now, having respect to Christ's atonement, as much requires the salvation of those that believe in Christ, as ever before it required their damnation. Salvation is an absolute debt to the believer from God, so that he may in justice demand it on the ground of what his surety has done. See also Edwards, God's Sovereignty, Works 4, 5 2, 2. Similarly, Anselm asks, Can anything be more just than for God to remit all debt, when in the sufferings of the God-man he receives a satisfaction greater than all the debt? Says Ezekiel Hopkins, The pardon of sin is not merely an act of mercy, but also an act of justice. What abundant cause of comfort may this be to all believers, that God's justice as well as his mercy shall acquit them, that that attribute of God, at the apprehension of which they are wont to tremble, should interpose in their behalf and plead for them. And yet, through the all-sufficient expiation and atonement that Christ hath made for our sins, this mystery is effected, and justice itself brought over, from being a formidable adversary, to be of a party and to plead for us. Shed Theological Essays 310-316 it may be asked, if atonement naturally and necessarily cancels guilt, why does not the vicarious atonement of Christ save all men indiscriminately, as the universalist contends? The substituted suffering of Christ, being infinite, is equal in value to the personal suffering of all mankind. Why then are not all men upon the same footing and in the class of the saved by virtue of it? The answer is because it is a natural impossibility. Vicarious atonement without faith in it is powerless to save. It is not the making of this atonement, but the trusting in it, that saves the sinner. By faith are ye saved. He that believeth shall be saved. Ephesians 2.8, Mark 16.16. 16. 
The making of this atonement merely satisfies the legal claims, and this is all that it does. If it were made but never imputed and appropriated, it would result in no salvation. A substituted satisfaction of justice without an act of trust in it would be useless to sinners. It is as naturally impossible that Christ's death should save from punishment one who does not confide in it, as that a loaf of bread should save from starvation a man who does not eat it. The assertion that because the atonement of Christ is sufficient for all men, therefore no men are lost, is as absurd as the assertion that because the grain produced in the year 1880 was sufficient to support the life of all men on the globe, therefore no men died of starvation during that year. The mere fact that Jesus Christ made satisfaction for human sin, alone and of itself, will save no soul. Christ conceivably might have died precisely as he did, and his death have been just as valuable for expiatory purposes as it is, but if his death had not been followed with the work of the Holy Ghost and the act of faith on the part of individual men, he would have died in vain. Unless his objective work is subjectively appropriated, it is useless so far as personal salvation is concerned. Christ's suffering is sufficient to cancel the guilt of all men, and in its own nature completely satisfies the broken law. But all men do not make it their own atonement by faith in it, by pleading the merit of it in prayer and mentioning it as the reason and ground of their pardon. They do not regard and use it as their own possession and blessing. It is nothing for them but a historical fact. In this state of things, the atonement of Christ is powerless to save. It remains in the possession of Christ who made it, and has not been transferred to the individual. In the scripture phrase it has not been imputed. There may be a sum of money in the hands of a rich man that is sufficient in amount to pay the debt of millions of debtors, but unless they individually take money from his hands into their own, they cannot pay their debts with it. There must be a personal act of each debtor in order that this money on deposit may actually extinguish individual indebtedness. Should one of the debtors, when payment is demanded of him, merely say that there is an abundance of money on deposit, but take no steps himself to get it and pay it to his creditor, he would be told that an undrawn deposit is not a payment of a debt. The act of God, says Owen, in laying our sins on Christ, conveyed no title to us to what Christ did and suffered. This doing and suffering is not immediately by virtue thereof ours, or esteemed ours, because God hath appointed something else, namely faith, not only antecedent thereto, but as the means of it. The supposition that the objective satisfaction of justice by Christ saves of and by itself, without any application of it by the Holy Spirit, and any trust in it by the individual man, overlooks the fact that while sin has a resemblance to a pecuniary debt, as is taught in the petition, Forgiveth our debts, it differs from it in two important particulars. A. In the instance of pecuniary indebtedness, there is no need of a consent and arrangement on the part of the creditor when there is a vicarious payment. Any person may step up and discharge a money obligation for a debtor, and the obligation ceases ipso facto. But in the instance of moral indebtedness to justice, or guilt, there must be a consent of the creditor, namely the judge, before there can be a substitution of payment. Should the supreme judge refuse to permit another person to suffer for the sinner, and compel him to suffer for his own sin, this would be just. Consequently, substitution in the case of moral penalty requires a consent and covenant on the part of God, with conditions and limitations, while substitution in the case of a pecuniary debt requires no consent, covenant, or limitations. b. Secondly, after the vicarious atonement has been permitted and provided, there is still another condition in the case, namely that the sinner shall confess and repent of the sin for which the atonement was made, and trust in the atonement itself. 
Another error underlying the varieties of universalism is the assumption that because an atonement sufficient for all men has been made, all men are entitled to the benefits of it. This would be true if all men had made this atonement, but inasmuch as they had nothing to do with the making of it, they have not the slightest right or title to it. No sinner has a claim upon the expiatory oblation of Jesus Christ. It belongs entirely to the Maker, and, and he may do what he will with his own. He may impute it to any man whom he pleases, and not impute it to any man whom he pleases. Romans 9.18 Even the act of faith does not by its intrinsic merit entitle the believer to the benefits of Christ's satisfaction. This would make salvation a debt which the Redeemer owes because of an act of the believer. It is only because Christ has promised and thereby bound himself to bestow the benefits of redemption upon everyone that believeth that salvation is certain to faith. It is objected that it is unjust to exact personal penalty from any individuals of the human race if a vicarious penalty equal in value to that due from the whole race has been paid to justice. The injustice alleged in this objection may mean injustice towards the individual believer who is personally punished, or it may mean injustice in regard to what the divine law is entitled to on account of man's sin. An examination will show that there is no injustice done in either respect. A. When an individual believer is personally punished for his own sins, he receives what he deserves, and there is no injustice in this. The fact that a vicarious atonement has been made that is sufficient to expiate his sins does not stop justice from punishing him personally for them, unless it can be shown that he is the author of the vicarious atonement. If this were so, then indeed he might complain of the personal satisfaction that is required of him. In this case, one and the same party would make satisfaction for one and the same sin, one vicarious and one personal. When, therefore, an individual believer suffers for his own sin, he receives the due reward of his deeds, Luke 23.24. And since he did not make the vicarious atonement for the sins of the whole world, and therefore has no more right or title to it, or any of its benefits than an inhabitant of Saturn, he cannot claim exemption from personal penalty on the ground of it. Says Owen, the satisfaction of Christ made for sin, being not made by the sinner, there must of necessity be a rule, order, and law constitution how the sinner may come to be interested in it and made partaker of it. For the consequent of the freedom of one by the sacrifice of another is not natural or necessary, but must proceed and arise from a law constitution, compact and agreement. Now the way constituted and appointed is that of faith, as explained in the scriptures. If men believe not, they are no less liable to the punishment due to their sins than if no satisfaction at all were made for sinners. b. The other injustice alleged in the objection relates to the divine law and government. It is urged that when the believer is personally punished, after an infinite vicarious satisfaction for human sin has been made, justice in this case gets more than its dues, which is as unjust as to get less. This is a mathematical objection and must receive a mathematical answer. The alleged excess in the case is like the addition of a finite number to infinity, which is no increase. The everlasting suffering of all mankind, and still more of only a part, is a finite suffering. Neither the sufferer nor the duration is mathematically infinite, for the duration begins though it does not end. But the suffering of the God-man is mathematically infinite because his person is absolutely infinite. When, therefore, any amount of finite human suffering is added to the infinite suffering of the God-man, it is no increase of value. Justice mathematically gets no more penalty when the suffering of lost men is added to that of Jesus Christ than it would without this addition. 
the law is more magnified and honoured by the suffering of incarnate god than it would be by the suffering of all men individually because its demand for a strictly infinite satisfaction for a strictly infinite evil is more completely met in this sense where sin abounded grace did much more abound romans five twenty it is for this reason that finite numbers small or great are of no consequence when the value of christ's oblation is under consideration one sinner needs the whole infinite christ and his whole sacrifice because of the infinite guilt of his sin and a million of sinners need the same sacrifice and no more the guilt of one man in relation to god is infinite and the infinite sacrifice of christ cancels it the guilt of a million of men is infinite not however because a million is a larger number than one but because of the relation of sin to god and the one infinite sacrifice of christ cancels it if only one man were to be saved christ must suffer and die precisely as he has and if the human race were tenfold more numerous than it is his death would be ample for their salvation an infinite satisfaction meets and cancels infinite guilt whether there be one man or millions four fourthly the vicarious satisfaction of justice is a mode or form of mercy it is so because it unites and harmonizes the two divine attributes in one divine act namely the suffering of incarnate deity for human guilt when the supreme judge substitutes himself for the criminal his own mercy satisfies his own justice for the transgressor this single act is therefore both an exercise of mercy and an exercise of justice it is certainly mercy to suffer for the sinner and it is certainly justice to suffer the full penalty which he deserves the personal satisfaction of justice on the contrary is not a mode or form of mercy because in this case the supreme judge inflicts the suffering required by the violated law upon the criminal himself personal satisfaction of justice is justice without mercy it is the severity spoken of by st paul in romans eleven twenty two vicarious atonement is both evangelical and legal gospel with law personal atonement is merely legal law without gospel the former is complex both merciful and just the latter is simple just not merciful in the legal sphere of ethics and natural religion where personal satisfaction rules justice and mercy are entirely separated attributes unblended and unharmonized justice obstructs the exercise of mercy by presenting its unsatisfied claims and mercy stands silent by there is no eye to pity and no arm to save isaiah fifty nine sixteen sixty three five but in the evangelical sphere of revealed religion the two attributes are united and harmonized mercy and truth meet together righteousness and peace kiss each other psalm eighty five ten divine mercy now satisfies divine justice and divine justice accepts the satisfaction the mercy is now infinitely just and the justice is now infinitely merciful the two coordinate and distinct attributes which outside of the gospel and apart from the incarnation are separate the one forbidding the exercise of the other are now blended the one meeting all the demands of the other and both concurring in the salvation of the guilty sinner for whose advantage all this costly sacrifice is made by the adorable trinity five fifthly the vicarious satisfaction of justice is the highest mode or form of mercy because it is mercy in the form of self-sacrifice a comparison of the different modes of the divine mercy will show this when the creator bestows temporal blessings in his providence upon the sinner when he makes his rain to fall and his sun to shine upon him there is a form of mercy greatly inferior to that shown in christ's atonement there is no loss on the part of the giver involved in the gifts of providence they do not cost the deity any sacrifice 
Again, should we conceive it possible for God to waive the claims of law by a word, and to inflict no penal suffering upon either the sinner or a substitute, this would be a lower form of mercy than that of vicarious atonement, for the same reason as in the previous instance. There is no suffering and no death undergone in the manifestation of such a species of compassion. This would be the easiest and cheapest of all methods of deliverance from punishment. Again, should we conceive of God in the exercise of ownership and sovereignty, as taking one of his creatures, say an archangel, and making him a vicarious substitute for man, this too would be a low species of mercy, and for the same reason as in the previous cases. It involves no self-sacrifice upon the part of God. The transaction does not affect anything in the divine essence. There is no humiliation and no suffering of God incarnate. But when justice is satisfied for man by the extraordinary means of substituting God for man, by the method of incarnating, humiliating, and crucifying a person of the Trinity, we see the highest conceivable form of divine compassion and pity. It is so strange and stupendous that it requires very high testimony and proof to make it credible. The vicarious satisfaction of justice is then the highest form of mercy because a. the offended party permits a substitution of penalty, b. The offended party provides the substitute, and c. The offended party substitutes himself for the offender. The infinite and eternal judge allows, prepares, and is a substitute for the criminal. How hast thou loved us, says Augustine, for whom he that thought it no robbery to be equal with thee was made subject even to the death of the cross, for us both victor and victim, and victor because victim, for us both priest and sacrifice, and priest because sacrifice. Aquinas remarks of the self-sacrificing pity of God, Miseria cordia non tolit justitiam, sed quandam justitiae plenitudo est. Similarly, Wessel describes the vicarious atonement in the words, Ipse Deus, Ipse Sacerdos, Ipse Hostia, Prose, Dese, Sibi Satisfecit. Pascal, expresses the same truth in the remark that in the Christian redemption the judge himself is the sacrifice. And Livingstone cries from the heart of Africa, What is the atonement of Christ? It is himself, it is the inherent and everlasting mercy of God made apparent to human eyes and ears. The everlasting love was disclosed by our Lord's life and death. It shows that God forgives because he loves to forgive. He works by smiles, if possible, if not by frowns. Pain is only a means of enforcing love. In this fact that the vicarious satisfaction of justice is self-sacrificing mercy, we have the answer to the objection that if justice is satisfied, there is no exhibition of mercy. There would be none if the satisfaction were made personally by the sinner, but when it is made vicariously by the eternal judge himself, it is the acme of mercy and compassion. Says the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 71, Although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepteth the satisfaction from a surety, which he might have demanded of them, and did provide this surety, their justification is to them of free grace. This truth is made still more evident by remarking the distinction between mercy and indulgence. The first is founded in principle, the latter is unprincipled. Mercy has a moral basis, it is good ethics. Indulgence has no moral foundation, it is bad ethics. Indulgence is foolish good nature, it releases from punishment without making any provision for the claims of law. Its motive is sensuous, not rational, it suffers itself from the sight of suffering, and this is the reason why it does not inflict it. It costs an effort to be just, 
and it does not like to put forth an effort. Indulgence in the last analysis is intensely selfish. Mere happiness in the sense of freedom from discomfort or pain is the final end which it has in view. Consequently, the action of indulgence as distinguished from mercy is high-handed. It is the exercise of bare power in snatching the criminal away from merited suffering. It is might, not right. A mob exercises indulgence when it breaks open a prison and drags away the criminal merely because the criminal is suffering. No member of this mob would take the criminal's place and suffer in his stead. This would be real mercy and mercy in its highest form of vicarious satisfaction. Should God deliver man from the claims of law without the substitution of penalty, it would be a procedure the same in principle with that of the mob in the case supposed. It would be indulgence, not mercy. In Romans 3.25, indulgence in distinction from mercy is referred to. St. Paul mentions as a secondary reason why Christ was set forth as a propitiation for sin, the fact that in the past history of the sinful world of mankind, God had been indulgent towards those who deserved immediate and swift retribution. He had passed by and omitted to punish. Instead of inflicting penalty, he had bestowed rain and fruitful seasons upon rebellious men, and had filled their hearts with food and gladness. He had suffered, Iase, all nations to walk in their own ways, and had winked at, that is, overlooked, Uperidon, the times of this ignorance, Acts 14, 16, 17, and 17, 30. St. Paul does not designate this indulgent treatment of sinful men by charis, the usual and proper term for forgiving mercy, but by anoche. It is not mercy but forbearance. It is in itself irregular and requires to be legitimated. And it is explained and set right by the piacular offering of the Son of God, because the vicarious atonement of Christ is sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Therefore it is that the sins of the whole world experience the forbearance of the Holy One. Therefore it is that the whole world receives many temporal blessings instead of swift retribution, because it is that God overlooks the times of guilty ignorance and disobedience and delays punishment. This pretermission of transgressions differs from their remission in being only temporary. This forbearance, even though explained and legitimated by the propitiation of Christ, is not to be eternal. Justice will finally assert its claims, and those whose unrepented transgressions have met with this temporary indulgence and delay of punishment on account of Christ's atonement will in the end receive the just punishment of sin. St. Paul in this passage does not say that these sins had been eternally pardoned by divine grace, charis, but had been only temporarily passed by through divine forbearance, anoech. 6. In the sixth place, the vicarious satisfaction of justice is the only mode of exercising mercy that is possible to a just being. This follows from the nature of justice and its relation to other divine attributes. If it be conceded that legal claims must be met at all hazards and cannot be either waived in part or abolished altogether, then it is evident that the great problem before the divine mercy is how to meet these claims in behalf of the object of mercy. The problem is not how to trample upon justice in behalf of the criminal, but how to satisfy justice for him. And if this problem cannot be solved, then there can be no manifestation of mercy at all by a just being. The penalty must be endured by the actual criminal, and the matter end here. God is a perfectly just being, and therefore cannot forever exercise mere forbearance and indulgence towards a transgressor. 
the mercy of the supreme being must be ethical, that is, must stand the test and scrutiny of moral principle and righteousness. If therefore the merciful God desires to release a transgressor from the suffering which he deserves, he must find someone who is fitted and willing to undergo this suffering in his place. And there is in the whole universe no being who is both fitted and willing to do this, but God himself. A creature might be willing, but he is unfit for the office of substitute. The language of Milton, respecting the transgressor, is theology as well as poetry. Die he, or justice must, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. Respecting the possibility of the substitution of penalty, it is to be observed, one, in the first place, that the punishment inflicted by justice is aimed, strictly speaking, not at the person of the transgressor, but at his sin. The wrath of God falls upon the human soul considered as an agent, not as a substance. The spiritual essence or nature of man is God's own work, and he is not angry at his own work, and does not hate anything which he has created from nothing. Man's substance is not sin. Sin is the activity of this substance, and this is man's work. God is displeased with this activity and visits it with retribution. Consequently, justice punishes the sin rather than the sinner, the agency rather than the agent, the act rather than the person. It does not fix its eye upon the transgressor as this particular entity and insist that this very entity shall suffer and prohibit any other entity from suffering for him. Justice, it is true, is not obliged to allow substitution, but neither is it obliged to forbid it. If it were true that the penalty must be inflicted upon the transgressor's very substance and person itself, as well as upon the sin in his person, then there could be no substitution. The very identical personal essence that had sinned must suffer, and justice would be the only attribute of God which could manifest towards a sinner. 2. Secondly, Justice is dispassionate and unselfish. It bears no malice towards the criminal. It is not seeking to gratify a grudge against him personally, but only to maintain law and righteousness. It inflicts pain not for the sake of inflicting it upon a particular individual, but for the sake of a moral principle. Hence, if the sin can be punished in another way than by causing the sinner to be punished, if the claims of law can be really and truly satisfied by a vicarious method, there is nothing in the spirit and temper of justice towards the sinner's person or soul to forbid this. The aspect of the law upon a sinner, says Bates, being without passion, it admits of satisfaction by the sufferings of another. And the same truth is condensed in the schoolman's dictum, Impersonalita poenen necessario infligi omni peccato, sed non personalita omni peccatori. 3. Thirdly, the substitution of penalty is implied in the divine sovereignty in administering government. If God from his very nature could not permit a proper person to take the place of a criminal, but were necessitated in every single instance to inflict the penalty upon the actual transgressor, his government would be just but not sovereign. He could make no changes in the mode of its administration, which is what is meant by a sovereign government. But God may vary the mode of administering justice, provided the mode adopted really satisfies justice, and there be no special reason in his own mind why in a particular instance the variation may not be permitted. There were such special reasons apparently in the case of the fallen angels, but not in the case of fallen men. This exercise of sovereignty and permitting substitution of penalty is by some Calvinistic theologians called a relaxation of justice, not in respect to the penalty demanded, but to the person enduring it. 
justice relaxes its demands to the degree of permitting a vicar to suffer for the actual criminal, but not to the degree of abating the amount of the suffering. The vicar must pay the debt to the uttermost farthing. Owen uses the term relaxation in the sense of substitution, but describes our Lord's suffering as the strict and full satisfaction of retributive justice. To see him, he says, who is the wisdom of God and the power of God, always beloved of the Father, to see him, I say, fear and tremble, and bow and sweat, and pray and die, to see him lifted up upon the cross, the earth trembling under him, as if unable to bear his weight, and the heavens darkened over him, as if shut against his cry, and himself hanging between both, as if refused by both, and all this because our sins did meet upon him. This, of all things, doth most abundantly manifest the severity of God's vindictive justice. Here, or nowhere, is it to be learned. This is very different from Scotus's and Grotius's relaxation. The latter is a relaxation in respect to the amount of the penalty as well as to the person enduring it. In case the administrative sovereignty of God decides to permit and provide a substituted penalty, the following conditions are indispensable, not by reason of an external necessity, but by reason of an internal necessity springing from the divine nature and attributes. 1. First, the suffering substituted must be penal in its nature and purpose, and of equal value with the original penalty. The theory of Duns Scotus, afterwards perfected by Grotius, according to which God's administrative sovereignty is so extended that he can, by a volitionary decision, accept a substituted penalty of inferior value, is the same in principle with the later theory of Sosinus. This scheme, denominated acceptiliation from a term of the Roman law, logically carried out, is fatal to the doctrine of vicarious atonement. From the same arbitrary sovereignty which compels justice to be content with less than its dues, can compel it to be content with none at all. If a government has power and authority to say that fifty cents shall pay a debt of a dollar, it has the power to extinguish debts entirely by a positive decision of the same kind. The principle of justice being surrendered in part is surrendered altogether. An illustration sometimes employed, taken from the instance of Zeleucus and his son, contains the false ethics of the theory of acceptiliation. This Locrian lawgiver had decreed that a person guilty of adultery should be made blind. His own son was proved to be an adulterer. He ordered one of his son's eyes and one of his own to be put out. Alien Historia Veria, 13, 24. This was an evasion, not a satisfaction of the law. The penalty threatened and intended to be threatened against adultery was total blindness. In a substitution of this kind, no one was made blind. Two eyes were put out, but not the two eyes of one man. Had Zeleucus ordered both of his own eyes to be put out, the case would have been a proper illustration of Christ's vicarious atonement. As the case actually stood, the lawgiver had principle enough to acknowledge the claims of justice, but not principle enough to completely satisfy them. That he was willing to lose one eye proves that he felt the claims of law, but that he was unwilling to make himself totally blind in the place of his son shows that he preferred to sacrifice justice to self, rather than self to justice. In saying that the suffering substituted for that of the actual criminal must be of equal value, it is not said that it must be identical suffering. A substituted penalty cannot be an identical penalty, because identical means the same in every respect. Identity is inconsistent with any exchange whatever. To speak of substituting an identical penalty is a contradiction in terms. The identical punishment required by the moral law is personal punishment involving personal remorse, and remorse can be experienced only by the actual criminal. 
If in commercial law a substituted payment could be prevented, a pecuniary debtor would be compelled to make an identical payment. In this case, he must pay in person and wholly from his own resources. Furthermore, he could not pay silver for gold, but gold for gold, and not only this, but he must pay back exactly the same pieces of gold, the ipsima pecunia, which he had received. Identical penalty implies sameness without a difference in any particular. Not only is the quantity the same, but the quality is the same. But substituted penalty implies sameness with a difference in some particular. And in the case before us, that of Christ's satisfaction, the difference is in the quality, the quantity being unchanged. The vicarious suffering of Christ is of equal value with that of all mankind, but is not the same in kind. Equivalency, not identity, is the characteristic, therefore, of vicarious penalty. The exchange implied in the term substitution is of quality, not of quantity. One kind of judicial suffering, that is suffering endured for the purpose of satisfying justice, is substituted for another kind. Christ's sufferings were of a different nature or quality from those of a lost man. But there was no difference in quantity or value. A less degree of suffering was not exchanged for a greater degree. The sufferings of the mediator were equal in amount and worth to those whose place they took. Vicarious penalty, then, is the substitution of an equal quantity, but a different quality of suffering. The mediator suffers differently from the lost world of sinners, but he suffers equally. Equivalency satisfies justice as completely as identity. One hundred dollars in gold extinguishes a debt of one hundred dollars as completely as does one hundred dollars in silver. If the sufferings of the mediator between God and man are of equal value with those of the world of mankind, they are as complete a satisfaction of justice as the eternal death of mankind would be, although they do not in their nature or quality involve any of that sense of personal wickedness or remorse of conscience which enters into the punishment of a lost man. They get their value from the nature of the God-man, and it is the value of what is substituted which justice looks at. The following extract from Samuel Hopkins enforces this truth. The mediator did not suffer precisely the same kind of pain in all respects which the sinner suffers when the curse is executed on him. He did not suffer that particular kind of pain which is the necessary attendant or natural consequence of being a sinner and which none but the sinner can suffer. But this is only a circumstance of the punishment of sin and not of the essence of it. The whole penalty of the law may be suffered, and the evil may be as much and as great, without suffering that particular sort of pain. Wherefore Christ, though without sin, might suffer the whole penalty, that is, as much and as great evil as the law denounces against transgression. 2. Secondly, the penalty substituted must be endured by a person who is not himself already indebted to justice, and who is not a subject of the government under which the substitution takes place. If he be himself a criminal, he cannot, of course, be a substitute for a criminal. And if he be an innocent person, yet owes all his own service to the government, he cannot do a work of supererogation, such as is implied in vicarious satisfaction. An earthly state could not righteously allow an innocent citizen to die for another, even if he were willing so to die, because there are claims upon the person and life of every citizen which must go undischarged if his life should be taken. These are the claims of family, of society, of the commonwealth, and of God. It is impossible, says Owen, that by anything a man can do well, he should make satisfaction for anything he hath done ill. For what he so doeth is due in and for itself, and to suppose that satisfaction can be made for a former fault, 
by that whose omission would have been another fault, had the former never been committed, is madness. An old debt cannot be discharged with ready money for new commodities, nor can past injuries be compensated by present duties, which we are anew obliged unto. Says Anselm, Cum redis aliquit quod debes deo, non debes computare hoc pro debito quod debes propecato. Omnia enim debis deo. The words of the Jewish elders to Christ respecting the Roman centurion illustrate the point under consideration. They besought Christ to heal his servant, saying that the centurion was worthy of such a favour, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Luke 7.5 The centurion had acquired merit, because as a Roman citizen he was under no obligation to build a Jewish synagogue. The sufferings of Christ meet all these conditions. 1. First, they were penal in their nature and intent, since they were neither calamitous nor disciplinary. They were a judicial infliction voluntarily endured by Christ for the purpose of satisfying the claims of law due from man, and this purpose makes them penal. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, he was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10. Christ was made a curse for us. Galatians 2.13 No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. John 10:17 and 18. Some writers, while defending the doctrine of vicarious atonement, object to applying the terms penal and penalty to Christ's sufferings. Maggie does so. The idea of punishment cannot be abstracted from personal guilt. Christ's sufferings are a judicial infliction and may perhaps be figuratively denominated punishment if thereby be implied a reference to the actual transgressor and be understood that suffering which was due to the offender himself and which, if inflicted upon him, would then take the name of punishment. In no other sense can the suffering inflicted on account of the transgressions of another be called a punishment. Ebrard, quoted by Van Oostersee, 2603, who agrees with Ebrard, says, if I endure the infliction due to another instead of him, this suffering, which for him would have had the moral quality of a punishment, has not the moral quality of a punishment for me because I am an innocent person. For the idea of a punishment contains, beside the objective element of suffering inflicted by the judge, also, in addition, the subjective element of the sense of guilt or an evil conscience possessed by the guilty. This last assertion is the point in dispute. Does the idea of a punishment contain, beside the objective element of suffering inflicted by the judge, also the subjective element of the sense of guilt? The question is whether the simple purpose and aim of the suffering in a given instance is sufficient to constitute it punishment. If a person suffers with a view to satisfy the claims of law, be he guilty himself or not, is this a penal suffering? Is such a judicial infliction, as Muggy calls it, properly denominated penalty? Does the existence of the objective element alone, apart from the subjective element, in the case of suffering for the purpose of atonement for sin, warrant the use of the terms penal and penalty? There are three reasons why it does. A. There is no other term but this by which to designate a suffering that is endured for the sole purpose of satisfying justice. It cannot be denominated either calamity or chastisement. B. When a commercial debt is vicariously paid by a friend of the debtor, it is as truly a payment as if paid personally, and the term payment is applied to it in the strict sense of the word. But if there is no valid objection to denominating the vicarious satisfaction of a pecuniary claim a payment, there is none to denominating the vicarious satisfaction of a moral claim a punishment. C. A third reason for the use of the term punishment or penalty 
in this connection is found in the use of the corresponding term atonement. No objection is made to calling Christ's suffering an atonement, but atonement and punishment are kindred in meaning. Both alike denote judicial suffering. There is consequently no more reason for insisting that the term punishment be restricted to personal endurance of suffering for personal transgression than there would be in insisting that the term atonement be restricted to personal satisfaction for personal sin. But the vicarious sufferings of Christ are as truly an atonement for sin as would be the personal sufferings of the sinner himself, and are as freely called so. It is as proper, therefore, to denominate Christ's suffering as vicarious punishment as to denominate it a vicarious atonement. The objection of Maggi and Ebrard is met by the qualifying term vicarious invariably joined with the term punishment when Christ's sufferings are denominated a punishment. No one asserts that they were a personal punishment. Anselm marks the difference by denominating the infliction when laid upon the sinner, poema, and when laid upon the substitute, satisfactio. Footnote. While there may be vicarious as well as personal punishment, because punishment is suffered for a judicial purpose, and this purpose can be fulfilled by a substitute as well as by the criminal, there can be no vicarious confession of sin and no vicarious repentance for it. Confession and repentance are necessarily personal acts. The scriptures never represent Christ as vicariously confessing the sins of his people or as vicariously repenting of them. Yet MacLeod Campbell, while dissatisfied with the Catholic doctrine of vicarious atonement, has set forth the theory that Christ has made a perfect confession of human sin and that this is an adequate satisfaction for sin. See Crawford on Atonement and on the Fatherhood of God, Lecture 4. End footnote. 2. Secondly, the vicarious sufferings of Christ were infinite in value. In the substitution, the amount is fully equal to that of the original penalty. A smaller suffering and inferior atonement was not put in the place of a greater and superior. The worth of any suffering is determined by the total subject who suffers, not by the particular nature in the subject which is the seat of the suffering. Physical suffering in a brute is not so valuable as it is in a man because a brute has only an animal nature, while a man has an animal united with a rational nature. Yet the nature which is the sensorium or seat of the physical pain is the same in both cases. But one hour of human suffering through the physical sentiency is worth more than days of brutal suffering through the physical sentiency, as one hour of Europe is worth a cycle of Cathay. When animal life and organization suffer in a man's person, the agony is human and rational. It is high up the scale. It has the dignity and greatness of degree which pertain to man. But when animal life and organization suffer in an ox or a dog, the agony is brutal and irrational. It is low down the scale. It has nothing of the worth and dignity that belong to the physical agony of the martyr and confessor. To apply this reasoning to the case before us, when a human nature suffers in an ordinary human person, the suffering is human and rational but finite. No mere man's suffering can be infinite in value because the total subject or person is finite. Whatever a man suffers in either of his natures, body or mind, gets its value from his personality. Measured by this, it is limited suffering, but when a human nature suffers in a theanthropic person, the suffering is divine and infinite because of the divinity and infinity of such a person. The suffering of the human nature in this instance is elevated and dignified by the union of the human nature with the divine, just as the suffering of an animal nature in an ordinary man is elevated and dignified by the union of the animal nature with the rational. 
The suffering of a mere man is human, but the suffering of a God-man is divine. Yet the divine nature is not the sensorium or seat of the suffering in the instance of the God-man any more than the rational nature is the sensorium or seat of the suffering in the instance of physical suffering in the man. A man's immaterial soul is not burned when he suffers human agony and martyrdom, and the impassable essence of God was not bruised and wounded when Jesus Christ suffered the divine agony. Hence it is said that Christ suffered in the flesh, that is, in his human nature. 1 Peter 4 1. It has been objected that the sufferings of Christ, not being endless, cannot be of equal value with those of all mankind. But when carefully examined and strictly computed, they will be found to exceed in value and dignity the sufferings for which they were substituted. The suffering of the God-man during a section of time is more exactly and mathematically infinite than would be the suffering of the human race in endless time. The so-called infinitude of human suffering is derived from the length of its duration, not from the dignity of the sufferer. It is the suffering of a finite creature in a duration that is eternal, only a parte post. This would not yield strict eternity. The suffering of the whole human race in an endless duration would, consequently, be only relatively infinite. But the vicarious suffering of the God-man obtains its element of infinitude from the person, not from the duration and this person is absolutely not relatively infinite. The suffering of an absolutely infinite person in a finite duration is therefore a greater suffering in degree and dignity than is the suffering of a multitude of finite persons in an endless but not strictly infinite time. God incarnate is a greater being and a greater sufferer than all mankind collectively, and his crucifixion involved a greater guilt upon the part of the perpetrators and a more stupendous sacrifice than would the crucifixion of the entire human family. If, inquires Anselm, of his pupil Bozo, that God-man were here present before you, and you having a full knowledge of his nature and character, it should be said, Unless you slay that person, the whole world and the whole created universe will perish. Would you put him to death in order to preserve the whole creation? To this question the pupil makes answer, I would not, even if an infinite number of worlds were spread out before me. Another proof that the vicarious work of Christ is of greater value in satisfying the claims of the divine law than would be the endless punishment of the whole human race is the fact that Christ not only suffered the penalty but obeyed the precept of the law. In this case, law and justice get their whole dues. But when lost man only suffers the penalty but does not obey the precept, the law is defrauded of a part of its dues. No law is completely obeyed if only its penalty is endured. The law does not give its subjects an option either to obey or to suffer punishment. It does not say to them, if you will endure the penalty, you need not keep the precept. It requires obedience primarily and principally, and then it also requires suffering in case of disobedience. But this suffering does not release from the primary obligation to obey. The law still has its original and indefeasible claim on the transgressor for a sinless obedience, at the very time that it is exacting the penalty of disobedience from him. Consequently, a sinner can never completely and exhaustively satisfy the divine law, however much or long he may suffer, because he cannot at one and the same time endure the penalty and obey the precept. He owes ten thousand talents and has nothing wherewith to pay, Matthew 18.24. But Christ did both, and therefore he magnified the law and made it honourable, Isaiah 42.21, in an infinitely higher degree than the whole human family would have done had they all personally suffered for their sins. Compare Edwards, Redemption, Works, 1, 406. 3. 
Thirdly, the vicarious sufferings of Christ were not due from him as from a guilty person. He was innocent, and retributive justice had no claims upon him. What he voluntarily suffered could, therefore, inure to the benefit of another than himself. The active obedience of Christ was also a work of supererogation, as well as his passive obedience. For although his human nature as such owed obedience, yet it owed only a human and finite obedience. But the obedience which the mediator actually rendered to the moral law was not that of a mere man, but of a God-man. It was theanthropic obedience, not merely human. As such, it was divine and infinite. It could therefore, like the passive obedience of an innocent person, inure to the benefit of another, and earn for him a title to eternal life and reward. And lastly, the God-man, not being a mere creature, but also the creator and lord of all things, could rightfully dispose of himself and his agency as he pleased. He asserted this sovereign lordship over himself in the words, No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power and authority, exousian, to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. John 10.18 The above-mentioned grounds and reasons for the substitution of penalty abundantly demonstrate its harmony with the principles of law and justice, but should they still be disputed, the whole question may be quickly disposed of by asking, Who objects? Objections to any method of administering a government can be urged only by some party whose rights and claims have been disregarded or trampled upon. In the instance of the vicarious atonement of the Son of God, no objection is raised by God the Father, for he officially proposed and planned the method. No objection is raised by God the Son, for he not only consents to be a party in the transaction, but to be the sacrificial victim required by it. And no objection is raised by God the Spirit, for he likewise is a party in the transaction and cooperates in its execution and application. This substitution of penalty is, therefore, a method devised and authorized by the entire Godhead. It is a Trinitarian transaction. Nothing is urged against it from this quarter. And when we pass from the divine being to angels and men, and ask for objections for one having real grounds of complaint, there must be, of course, a dead silence. No angelic or human rights have been interfered with. Objections to the method of vicarious atonement from the world of mankind especially would be not merely unthankful but absurd. That the criminal, who has no claims at all before the law which he has transgressed, and under whose eternal condemnation he lies in utter helplessness, that the criminal in whose behalf eternal pity has laid down its own life should object to the method would deserve not only no reply but everlasting shame and contempt. End of section 4